morning, church family. Please pray with me. Father, we pray a simple prayer that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word. May we be receptive to it. Amen. How does it keep happening? By every conceivable data point, the United States of America continues to move from a nation with Christian values to a nation with secular values. From a nation with a standard of external morals to a nation with a collapse of morality. From a nation that held those who followed the Lord in certain esteem and positive esteem now to a nation that regularly chides, ridicules, or even persecutes those who attempt to follow the Lord. How does this keep happening? In May, the Gallup organization published the results of a yearly poll that measures the acceptability of moral standards in the United States. And they began this poll in 2001, and every year they've asked the same types of questions again and again and again. And many of the questions are the exact same year over year. They've added a couple along the way as cultural trends have continued to change. And the important feature of the poll is the fact that they ask the same questions, because then you can truly track a trend from 2001 all the way to 2017 and onward. And the results of the poll are not surprising, but they certainly indicate the reality that this country as a mass or as a whole is moving in a certain direction. Let me give you just a few examples. We now live in a time when 73% of Americans believe that divorce is morally acceptable. That's up from 59% when the poll began. 69% of people believe that sex outside of marriage is acceptable between two non-married people. It's up from 53%. And and 63% believe that same-sex relationships are morally acceptable. 62% believe that having children outside of marriage is morally acceptable. That's up from 45% when the poll began. And 57% of people believe that doctor-assisted suicide is morally acceptable. 36% believe pornography is morally acceptable. And now 17% of our population believes that polygamy is morally acceptable. That's up from 10% when the poll began. And the big revelation of the study, of course, is that more than ever, Americans continue to move or to trend toward liberal moral views. In fact, none of the major categories have seen a gain toward a more conservative position. Every single one has moved more liberal over the last 16 years of the study. And so what is going on here? And more importantly, why (laughs) is this happening? Because the moral issues themselves are simply symptoms of another problem. And to examine that problem more carefully, I want to ask you to open your Bible with me and turn to the book of Judges. And today we're going to look at Judges chapter 17 and 18. And as a reminder, as you're turning, Judges 17 and 18 is found on page 216 of that pew Bible. You will want to open and turn and follow along with me. We're going to read the whole two chapters. 
What's happening here in this book of Judges is that the people of Israel, God's people, are in a cycle of sin. And actually, this cycle of sin is now starting to turn more toward like a downward spiral. (laughs) Their leaders are flawed. Their behavior is getting increasingly egregious. And now the religion is actually characterized as a false religion. And we see that in Judges 17 and 18. And so we have two chapters this morning that we want to read. It's one, one long story. It's an interesting story. It's a little bit twisted. And I want to encourage you, when we read long sections of text like this, really exercise that mental staying power. I know around verse... Seven, you'll probably want to start zoning out, but then you'll miss the rest of the story. This is what it says. This is God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, The silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And he journeyed, and he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. Now just to pause for a second there. A Levite, the tribe of the Levites, were the tribe of priests in Israel. And so when Micah asks this man to become his personal priest, he's asking somebody from the tribe of priests. This is of higher esteem than his own son. And so the Levite went in, verse 11. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Chapter 18, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Ashtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to him, go and explore the land. 
And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place, and what is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah has dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, where they saw the people who were there, how they lived in security and manner of, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Ashtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter and to possess the land, and as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. For God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And so 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Ashtol. And they went up and they camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On account of the place is called Manahadan to this day. Behold, it's west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim. And they came to the house of Micah. And when the five men who had gone out to scout the country of life said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside, and they came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and they asked about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image while the priest stood by at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with the weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and he went along with the people. Stay with me, we're almost done. They turned and they departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you would come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what do I have left? How do you say to me, then, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. 
But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people who were quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. There were no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city, and they lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But to the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of their captivity of the land. And so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So as we consider the story, I think it's helpful to think about it in two levels. The first is the broad category. What is happening to a people, to a nation, to a land? A mass of people that are caught in a downward spiral. And secondly, I think it's helpful to think about this story in the personal sense. I mean, because if we are dealing with a false religion on a massive scale, it is very important that we ourselves, personally, don't get caught up in said false religion. Let's look at the text and look at how we got there. We see that what's happening in the land at this time is, a, is really a state of chaos that's leading to a false religion. One of the resounding themes of this story is seen repeated twice in chapter 17, verse 6. Look at it with me. And again in chapter 18, verse 1. These are marker statements. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, it might not seem like that big of a deal at first. And the little sentence is tucked in there a couple of times, and you might have even missed the significance of it. But the lack of a king led to everyone doing what was right in his or her own eyes, which led to a state of chaos, which in turn led to a false religion. Now, who was supposed to be the king? We've seen throughout this section of the Old Testament that Israel had never had a true king of their own in the Old Testament unless they were under submission to a foreign nation. God was supposed to be their king. Only God himself. I mean, God was the one who rescued them from the Egyptians. He had brought them through the wilderness by the hand of Moses. He had given them the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And at the concluding of Joshua's ministry, right before this book of Judges begins, he calls all the tribes and all the people together to renew the covenant. He reminds them of the great works and words of God, and he says, now you get to choose. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the gods of the land, or are you going to serve Yahweh, this great king who has delivered you and they resoundingly all said we will serve the lord this king was to be known to them through the law which was written he was known to them through the prophets who were present among them he was known to them through his miraculous and saving works which were regular in their midst but as we've seen from the very beginning of judges they persisted in the cycle of sin, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this short memory 
leads a young man named Micah to steal the silver from his mother. And upon returning it, she has commissioned a metal image and a carved image, two household gods, idols, that were designed to help Micah and his family in the worship of God. And he even makes one of his own sons a priest. And the takeaway here is that a lack of submission or recognition that God himself was the king will often lead to a false religion. When our memory is short for what God has done broadly in the world, broadly in our nation, or more specifically, even in our own lives, then we will often do what is right in our own eyes. We'll go back to what we know. We will go back to what we are most comfortable with. When you don't recognize God as king, we're left to our old ways, which ultimately leads to a false religion. But what does this religion look like? Here we see a case of a misapplied desire for God that leads to a personalized religion. Micah wants to worship God, but he only wants to do so to a certain end, his personal gain. And so the story continues. Micah sets up this shrine in his house. He's got the carved image. He's got the metal image. He has an ephod, which is like a a, a vest that helps him to pray and to hear from God. He commissions one of his sons. But then this Levite from the tribe of priests comes along and he makes him a job offer. Verse 10, stay with me and be a father and a priest, and I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and the suit of clothes and your living. Micah now has his personal priest for hire. He has a personal shrine. He has a personal priest. And verse 13 tells us why. Look at it with me. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. What we have here is this natural desire to worship God. It's a desire that all people are given. And yet, this natural desire is twisted only toward a specific end, his personal gain. This is what happens when we stop looking at God as king and we start looking at him as our own personal valet. (laughs) This is what happens when we take God functionally, in our minds at least, off the throne and start putting him like a genie in a bottle. This is personalized religion. And it's false religion. You know, there's a pervasive approach to spirituality in our country during this time, and this is one of the ways that I think we can apply this text. We could simply call this approach to religion the religion of Chipotle. Now, Chipotle's had a bad week in the news. I don't know if you have seen it. There's viral videos going around about mice and rats and all that kind of stuff. So you might want to think twice, but I'm just saying. Some of you love Chipotle, and that's okay. Uh, Chipotle offers a variety of simple and fun ways to eat lunch and dinner. You come up to the burrito bar, you look down the aisle of all the food options, there's a glass pane in front of you and there's servers there and and you get to concoct 
your own burrito, to your very own taste and to your liking. The ingredients are laid out and it's personalized for you. Now, unfortunately, some people take that same approach when it comes to the spiritual quest. In our culture, it's tempting to think that we can saunter up the great burrito bar of the religious world and say something like this. I'll have some of that evangelicalism. I really like their energy and cultural adaptability. But I like the regal nature of Roman Catholicism. I mean, it seems kind of ancient, and I also need a dab of mystery in my life. But not too much, please, because I also want to figure things out for myself. I like the calmness and detachment of Buddhism, but once again, give me just a small portion because I don't want to quench all my earthly desires. And, and speaking of earthly desires, wow, secularism, that looks like it has a lot of fun components to it. Give me some of that. Oh, but that judgment of God stuff, that's too spicy. Let's leave that out. Or that Jesus is the only way to God's salsa? No, I don't know if I want to limit myself to that option. Please keep that out. Or please hold the surrender your life to the king sauce. I like my life just the way that it is. And we literally pick and choose, often without research, often very subjectively, the things that we think must be true. And as a result, we make our own religion. It's like a self-made burrito. And when you seek to personally control God, when you worship him on the terms you set, when you only hear from the sections of the Bible you want to hear from, when you pick and choose the attributes of his character that you like, or when you only sing the songs about God that you want to sing, who does God begin to look like? You. And what do we call it when we make God into the image of another? We call that idolatry. My friends, I fear that we are so dangerously close to making a personalized religion in our country. And it is a false religion. In our time, our insatiable desire to be entertained makes it harder for us to care about the most serious things. The busyness of our lives and placing priorities on the activities of our children bring us to a place where, like Micah, we say we want to worship God, but in actuality, we're only willing to do so on our own personalized terms. Our desire for positivity, for wealth, for comfort, for relational likability, they all tempt us to focus only on the attributes and actions of God that we like or that match our own desires. And we avoid or we deny the whole revelation of God's works and his ways that are taught throughout the entire Bible. And thus we effectively attempt, we would never say it, but we effectively attempt to make God into our very own image. 
This is how a nation like ours continues to move toward immoral positions year after year after year. Burrito bar religion. This is how churches and denominations abandon the gospel and teach social tolerance. This is how individuals move from a growing life with God to a false religion. When people domesticate God, false religion is the result. When people domesticate God, false religion is the result. And the story continues. The Danites, which is one of the tribes of Israel, come and seeking to know if they will have success and victory over the land. Now, God had already said the appointed allotment for the land of the tribe of Dan. It was in the book of Joshua. They weren't paying attention to that, or they forgot that, or they decided that it wasn't enough for them. They were anxious. They were itchy. They wanted their action right now. And so they go on a hunt to take hold of an inheritance. And they come to the priest, and they ask, and inquire, and Micah's personal priest, the Levite, tells them that they'll have victory. They go back and they report to their people, but before the battle, they say to themselves, hey, did you notice that that guy with the personal gods also has a personal priest? I think we should go take them both for ourselves. And so they did. They went back, they took the carved images, and they solicited the priest to go with them. Look at chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. They're raiding the land, they're raiding the compound. The priest comes to them and says, what are you doing? And they say to him, keep quiet and put your hand over your mouth. Here's the job offer. Come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is Better for you, is it better for you to be a priest of a house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the carved images and he went along with the people. There are two important points of application here. Number one is the first is the natural implications of relativism. Now, by relativism, we mean the common cultural thread that we're seeing here in this part of Judges, and it's also a common thread that we see today. We can summarize it very plainly by saying, you believe what is good for you, and I'll believe what is good for me, and we don't have to talk about rights and wrongs. We don't have to fight. We can live at peace with one another. Truth is relative based on your personal experiences and the context around you. But here's problem. If you believe what is good for you is good for you and what is good for me is good for me, it will ultimately break down when what is good for you clashes with what is good for me. (laughs) And instead of peace, we have chaos. And for all the talk about tolerance in our time, this desire for peace that fuels this tolerance, when truth becomes slippery or when it becomes personalized or personally based, peace will not be the outcome. Anarchy will reign. 
This is how, at the beginning of the message, I said that 69% of Americans believe that it's morally acceptable for a man and a woman outside the context of marriage to be sexually active. However, the same study reveals that only 9% of Americans think that an extramarital affair is morally acceptable. So what's happening here? What's happening here is that we're very happy to say as a culture that, the, that freedom and, and liberty in issues of sex and relationships are okay just as long as the consequences of them don't enter my own home. <laughs> just as long as it's not my spouse that wants to exercise that type of freedom. Just as long as it's not my marriage to be the one to fall apart. Moral relativism results in chaos because when people domesticate God, false religion is the result. And so here we see in the story that the Danites come and they make off with the personal carvings and the personal priest. And Micah runs out. What, Micah, who's saying what's good for me is good for me. I'm going to personalize this God. The Danites are saying, well, I'm going to personalize this God too. But now What's good for you clashes with good for me. And so Micah runs out and he says, hey, where are you going? Why are you taking all my stuff? You take my gods that I made and my priest. What have I left? And the irony is thick. I mean, Micah stole the silver from his mom. And now the silver is being stolen from him. Micah says that he made the gods. But can a god actually be made? And furthermore, if this God is really just being taken off by a couple of bandits, then how could he possibly be a God? Surely a real God would be more powerful than that. His personalized religion is shown as a false religion, and it results in chaos. When you domesticate God, false religion is the result. There's another danger here that we would do well to notice. And the danger is the temptation to confuse success with God's blessing. We live in a time right now where we would very often seek God's blessing or God's prospering, and we should. But when prospering comes or when success comes, we then automatically attribute it to God. But look at the text. You'll notice that Success at one season of this happens to Micah. Success happens to the priest. And success happens for the Danites. But this is not the blessing of God in any of these instances. Chapter 17, verse 13, Micah says that God will grant him success because he's got a Levite. The coming of the Levite must be a good omen. Chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, the Levite who is nothing more than a personal priest for hire, is glad in his heart to be promoted, not just to the priest of one household, but now the priest of entire clan. Success. And, of course, the Danites inquire about success. They achieve success in conquering the land. But none of this is blessing from God. There is danger in thinking that just because you are successful that God must be blessing you. Clearly, the opposite is happening here. 
And the opposite happens in our own lives as well. If your external circumstances seem favorable, but they do not line up with the teachings of the Lord, or if they prohibit you from following God to a greater extent of faithfulness, then I would venture to say that God is not blessing you. It could be just the opposite. And so there's a number of practical ways that we can look at this. I mean, if you get a job promotion, but it requires you to move away from a church family that you have grown to know the Lord in and be mature in the Lord and serve the Lord in, then this promotion might not actually be a blessing from God. It might be the opposite. If your son or your daughter advances on a sports team, and that means that they'll never be in church on Sundays because of weekend tournaments or they'll never be in youth group during the week because uh, of practices and you know that there's a spiritual trajectory that so often happens in those formative teenage years, but they're succeeding in their given sport, is this a blessing from God? Or is it the opposite? If you are introduced to an interesting new social circle that could benefit you in a number of ways, but at the very same time, it puts you in the constant path of temptation to sin. This looks like success, but is this blessing from God? Or is this the opposite? Be careful to equate success with the blessing of God. Sometimes it is the case but sometimes it's not. So you proceed with biblical grounding and wisdom. You think not just in the immediate future, but in the long-term future. You evaluate not just based on external measure and personal desire, but on a greater dynamic in which the Lord himself directs our paths and our agenda for life. And if you don't know, is this good for me or bad for me, then by all means find a trusted brother or sister in Christ and process with them. When people domesticate God, false religion is the result. And so part of the foundational problem of this text that we stated right at the beginning, we said this resounding theme, it's mentioned twice. There was no king in Israel. And so we ask ourselves a question. Who is the king we are to follow? Can you think of anybody? That's right. Jesus. If you want to avoid the perils of false religion, follow King Jesus. If you want to steer clear of the tragedy of personalizing God for your own gain, then surrender your life to the king, to King Jesus. If you want a life to live that is lived to the very full, then devote yourself to King Jesus. This King Jesus is the one who all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to. He is the living word of God. He is the light in the darkness. He is before all things, and by him and for him all things were created. All dominions and rulers and authorities are subject to him, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. Is there a king to follow? It's King Jesus. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. 
He's the head of the church. He's the giver of good gifts. He's the true vine. He is the bread of life. King Jesus is the rock of ages, the bright and morning star. He's gentle. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He's the perfect high priest. Jesus is the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He is the supreme over weather, supreme over the spirits, and supreme over life and death itself. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Angels continually sing his praises. Saints of of days gone by continually plead for his final justification and vengeance. Jesus holds the keys to death and to Hades. He's the only one who is worthy to open the scroll of the book of life. And he is the only one worthy to stand at the right hand of God the Father. And he beckons you to come. If you want true religion, then follow King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so easily tempted toward a personalized religion. Forgive us. Help us to be faithful to the King.